All right, so uh, just to let you know, you have come to church on a real dangerous Sunday. It's true, because anytime you get uh, preachers and they haven't preached for a while, they've had time off, man, they are wound up and they can go for hours and hours and, and <laughs> no, I won't do that. Um, but uh, it is an exciting time to start something new and to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is growth, and we decided to talk about sustainable growth. And we're talking about, you know, in our spirit, um, in our hearts, we're talking about our growth as a Christian, someone who is a follower of Jesus. I know you may be here and you say, well, I'm, I haven't made that decision. I'm not a follower of Jesus. That's okay. Um, I think you'll still get a lot out of this because you'll see something that kind of relates to you as someone who was made by a God. You were created and God, when he created you, uh, the, the Bible actually teaches that God cares for you and makes plans, even, even in our sin, even in our mess, God is the one who rescues and he has plans for us. And uh, in fact, if you look in the Bible, Jesus, the, the story of Jesus is not just coming and giving his life for us, but Jesus does a lot. He, he spends a lot of try, time trying to teach people how they should live and this, this way of living is all tied to this alignment with God that he wants you to understand. That, that you wanna hold on to this idea that I wanna align my life with, with God's life and who God is and what his plans and what, what his purposes um, are. In fact, in your outline, I put a definition here. If you look on my phone, I have a Webster dictionary on my phone, and this is the fourth definition for alignment. I like this because I thought it was real um, relative to a new year and, and trying to move forward for a new year. Here's what it says, fourth definition of alignment. Uh, an arrangement of groups or forces, say this part with me, in relationship to, yes, because there is a relationship there. And, and a lot of your growth, especially spiritual growth as a Christian, is all about your, what you're gonna align your life to. And, and when Jesus came, he was trying to bring back a relationship to God and the understanding that we can know God and, and God will lead us and he has a future for us. And that's very different than if you live your life without that. In fact, one of the things that happened to uh, Israel and it happens to us is when you, when you live your life in a world that, that doesn't necessarily know God or follow God, you, you really get caught up in sometimes the wrong things as being the most important thing. Pretty uh, understandable. Um, we all do that. If you're raising kids, uh, you might kind of tie it even to raising your kids. You teach your kids to do the what? The right thing, right. So and it's, the emphasis is on do the right thing. But your hope is in trying to teach them to do the right thing that you're gonna somehow affect in here, the heart, um, their, their motivation, why they do the right thing. But it doesn't always work that way. In fact, if you live in the world, you'll notice it doesn't always work that way, does it? We're gonna be watching football games, right? And coaches and owners, when they are recruiting for football teams, what are they after? They're after the very best what? Yeah, absolutely they are. We want the guys that are the fastest, the strongest, the most skilled, who've worked at it. And, and a lot of times, it doesn't matter. I mean, it does. But a lot of times, it, it, it doesn't matter, you know, what's going on in here. They just need someone that can do this, and it's a very elite group. It's one of the things, you know, I'm excited that the Texans made the playoffs, didn't they? Yeah. And uh, yeah, and so I like them. I like their team. I like the, what they try to build into their players. I like the coach. I think 
He does a great job as far as doing the right thing also, and it's always fun when good people do well, but it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the, the worst, the sorriest people excel because they know how to, to do the things they need to do to excel, even though they may not have a, a, a good heart. But, but God is, is, is trying to deal with us here. When I grew up, my dad loved college football. So uh, my dad was a doctor, so he'd come from a poor background, but he'd done well. And uh, at one point, my dad was you know, dressing nicely and all, which you're supposed to. Um, that's what doctors do, right? And so he'd take us to football games, and one time, he decided to start wearing a hat. It was the era, you know, the day when, when men would wear these hats, these fedoras, and he had a real nice one, and he'd wear it to the football games, and it you know, made him distinguish. I know that he thought, you know, this is this way people will think, you know, better of him as a doctor. And of course, absolutely. And uh, we'd go to the game, my brother, my sister, and I with him, my mom, and there at the game, one year, uh, the team that, that he went to school, I went to school there also, one year they had a really bad year. In fact, two weeks in a row, we drove to the game, we're at the game, two weeks in a row, they played teams they were supposed to beat. They were supposedly better than those teams, and they lost both games. On the second game, when they lose, my dad takes the fedora off, throws it in the stands on the ground, right? You know, right there, stomps it in the stands, just is stomping this hat as if it's the hat's fault, I guess, you know. As a kid, I'm like, okay, I don't really understand. I mean, I understand getting mad, we all do that, but he stomps this hat and, uh, and leaves it. I remember walking off and there's a hat. He never wore one again, I mean, that was it. Because obviously that was the problem, which is why we were losing. And somebody in cleanup, which was, I'm sure they were very happy in cleaning up the stand, sweeping, found this and probably cleaned it up, brushed off, found a really nice, expensive fedora, you know. So, and maybe they're wearing it and they don't care whether their team wins or loses. I don't know, you know. And, and it, it, it's what we do. It's, you know, we want to win. We have this idea in life, I'm sure you do also. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that necessarily. You, you want to do well. You want to use your, your gifts, your talents. You want to be successful. Nothing wrong with that at all. But Jesus, when he came and he spoke, he was trying to bring a different alignment of what it means to win and be successful and find out who you are and find out who God is and align your life with him. Why? Because what God does is bigger than just what happens on a football field or one week or what. See, all those things are temporary, but God has permanent things. And when you understand that God placed you here and rescued you and redeemed you and has a plan for your life, and you start looking to him for those things and you start looking for him for your, for your guidance. And this is exactly what Jesus does is he tries to bring people uh, to this place. So I wanna take you to, this is called the Sermon on the Mount and it's in um, Matthew's, version of the gospel is the biggest uh, description or giving you what was done in the Sermon on the Mount. It's this enormous uh, message that Jesus gave to the people just to, uh, to do my, paint a picture in the air for you. So here's the Mediterranean Sea, right? And here's the land of Israel. And then you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the uh, Dead Sea here. Jesus would be giving this. Jerusalem is down here, but Jesus would be giving this message up above the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, which is where he spent most of his time in those last three years of his life. And somewhere up there, he finds a place, a hillside, uh, when, when it, you know, it talks about a mount, it's a little bit different there 
than what you and I may think of. It's not like the Rockies or something like that. It's, there are hills that would be there, and from those vantage points, they could see and people could see you. And it, you know, it was just, uh, when we were uh, in April, we were uh, in uh, Israel, a bunch of people that some of them are in here, and uh, we were sitting on the, uh, the Mount of Olives. And this, the Mount of Olives, as, you, as you're on this hillside, which is what it is, there's a ravine, and then the land goes back up to another mount, small uh, raised area called Jerusalem. And on this mount is where the temple uh, sits. And you can see it. It's just amazing. It's like, it's like being, you know, watching on television. You can just see the whole thing. The, the vantage point is just incredible. This is what Jesus is looking for, a place where he can teach. He sits down which is what Jewish rabbis in his day would do, teachers would do. He would sit down and people would come and they would listen to him and they would learn all about how to live life and who God is and how their life fits into it. And this was one of Jesus' major, major purposes was so that you would understand and you wouldn't get sidetracked, you wouldn't go the wrong way. So he's, he's, he's seated in this place and unlike um, one, of my, one of my favorite preachers who has uh, passed away, uh, a good number of years ago, as he would say, Jesus is, is teaching only his disciples. That, if you read the, the, the text about this in the Gospels, you'll find that that's actually not true. He's, he's speaking and teaching anyone who will come. Yes, his disciples, it speaks of his followers, it speaks a lot of language, but anyone who wants to come and hear about the kingdom, and a lot of times it was a lot of people who came and listened to him preach or teach or tell them all about the kingdom of God, where their place is in it, what God himself is doing so that they would know and so that they can then align their life with God himself and with what God um, is doing. So here, this is in chapter number six of Matthew's gospel. The uh, Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter five, so I'm skipping uh, to, to this one place because I think it, it works so well uh, with this point, here's what Jesus says in beginning of verse number one. He says, watch out, or some translations uh, would say, beware, or be, uh, be on your guard. So he's, he's trying to make sure that they understand, here's something you don't wanna do, but which is very common for people to do. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the, say this word with me, you will lose the what? The reward, right, from your father who is in heaven. So, so he is warning them. There's a way to live your life, to do good things. Should you do good things? Jesus would certainly say yes, but the problem is if you're doing good things in your life in order to be admired by other people and for other people to say, oh, what a wonderful person you are, here's the problem. You've got your reward. <laughs> they're, they're acclaim. You know how long their acclaim lasts? About that long, right? And then they move on to the next thing and, and, uh, and they're concerned about their acclaim also. So if you're doing it for that reason, you, you're gonna be disappointed down the road because you really wanna do it because of who God is and what God has done and look for his reward. His looking at you and saying, now, it may not be, the reward may not be very immediate, may not be what you were hoping for, you see what other people have, but, but you want God to be the one who looks at your life and says, you know, that's the kind of person I want. That's the kind of person I'm looking for. I've told this story before. My daughter, she, she went to school. Uh, she did really well in school, and at one point she wins some award 
in her field in her senior year. We go by, and there's a wall there, and there are all these brass plates of who won this year, and there is her name up there, you know, and, um, and she has my last name. So I'm like, yeah, there's my name. You know, so it's up there, and we stand there, and I'm, I'm there with my daughter looking at it. And I'm, I'm really bad about being the, uh, I don't know, the bursting bubble. So I'm really bad. I'm, I'm looking at it and saying, you know, and the thing is, in a couple of weeks, no one will care. And then so, oh, yeah, thanks, Dad, you know, which is really probably what she said because she's used to saying that to me, and I'm like, thanks. But it's the reality of it. Yeah, it's on the wall. It's a brass plate. It may be there a long time, maybe not. I don't know if you realize it, but they tear those down sometime. And, they, you know, and, and they're already, the school and the new students come in and are already looking to how they can have their name put up on the wall, right? Sure, that's just the way life works. And, and you've got to be okay with that because the rewards in this life are always very temporary. But, but God has different plans for your life and, and for my life. And Jesus is trying to make sure that you align yourself with, with God himself and what his plans are. So he adds this, verse number two. He says, when you, when you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do. This is a good thing to do, helping people. But be careful, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and in the streets to call attention to their acts of charity. He says, I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. He means right then. That's it. That's the whole thing. He says, verse three, but when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which can be a little awkward, right? You know, because you wanna coordinate things, but he's just using that as an illustration. He says, give your gifts in private. And he says, and your father who sees everything will do what? It, it's a motivation. It, it's a way of looking at it. Do good things, yes, you should do good things. But Jesus wants you to understand, it's not just doing good things. The question is, why are you doing these good things? If you've got kids, you teach your kids to do good things, can you, can you teach them the why part or can you, can you no, you, you can't. You can just teach them to do good things. But you're hoping eventually as they grow up and maybe you know, that as we grow up, we can figure out the better reason to do them and, uh, and uh, whose reward we would rather have. Then he jumps to another subject. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. Nothing wrong with public prayer, nothing wrong with praying in the synagogues. He's just saying, be careful that you don't get it mixed up why you do this and what you're looking for. He says, verse six, when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you. It literally says, go into your closet and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will do what? He'll reward you, yes. Um, Wolford and Zook, they, uh, they uh, have a commentary that they uh, manage, and this is what they say uh, in this. One of the writers puts this in, he says, natural questions in the heart of every Jew would have been this, natural questions. Am I eligible to enter the Messiah's kingdom? Do I, do I have what it takes to make it in the kingdom, and am I righteous enough to qualify for entrance? Of course. Those are all things that the way we understand it and the way we look at it. But because of it, it, it tended to orient them toward doing good things, thinking that if they did enough good things, they would get in and God is, 
judging them based on all the good things that they do. And, and that's just a, a difficult thing to go through in life as if all God sees is the things that you do. The one thing about God is God sees why you do it. God goes deeper than that. He looks at us deeper than that. I put six things in your outline, kind of three and three, and uh, let me go through them really quickly. You may, you may like these, you may not. That's, you know, you still gotta sit through it. Here's what it says, uh, number one. Their starting point, the people, their starting point was the instruction of the religious leaders. Yes, of course it was. And this is what they were taught. Uh, this is what the religious leaders did many times with religions. This is all the focus of religions. Do good things, don't do bad things. Good thing, yes, it's a good thing. But it's not the only thing, and it's not really, you know, what God is looking for is so much bigger and deeper. You can go Old Testament to the New Testament. God examines the heart. He understands what we're doing. You, we can't fool him. We can fool people, but we can't fool God himself. And then the second thing, which I think kind of, you know, helps us, uh, their emphasis was on what you do. That was the emphasis, what you do. You ever focused on what you do? I have, my wife is a doer, and I'm glad that she's a doer. She is all about getting things uh, done, and she likes everything in its place, and when we grab a task or she focuses on a task, man, she's gonna go after that task, and she's gonna make sure that it's done and because I'm attached to her, you know, I end up as a part of that, even though it's not the way I would necessarily do it. So at one point, we moved to the second house we've ever owned. We, uh, we left one house packed up, boxed up, all these things, and moved to the second house that we've ever owned. And she came up with her new rule. It's a doing rule. Maybe, maybe you can adapt this rule to your life. It's a doing rule. The rule was this, 48 hours and there are no more boxes. So we're gonna be unpacked, everything's gonna be in its place, you know, yeah, it's us, we got two kids, we got, oh, I'm like, oh man, an 18-wheeler pulls up 48 hours and we will be out of boxes. And so as we stood there, she said, so here's the way it works. The house is mine, I'm gonna unpack this, the garage is yours. So that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? I mean, the garage is not that, much, that very big and the house is big, great. You know, you do the house, I'll do the garage. She said, yes. So got it, got it, yeah, come on, help me. And so she takes me in the house, of course, and I work for her in the house. <laughs> but that's the way it works. She's the doer and she's, you know, and so she's got me, me going and working. We work for one day and then the next day we're in our second day and by the end, by dinner time, we have finished the house, absolutely. And I'm glad that she's like that because, um, you know, it all gets unpacked and put where it's supposed to be and everything like that. And, and I'm about dead by this time. I mean, I'm, it's time to eat dinner. The second day I'm like, great, we eat dinner and after we eat dinner, she says, okay, I said, what do you mean? Okay, okay, the garage. And I'm like, what? no, 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 what do you mean the garage? She said, yeah, your part, right? And I said, no, I, you I've been helping you with it, so, you know, but she's gonna go with me. So just to let you know, that's not the way it works. She will go with me. She's just gonna tell me what to do in the garage, and she's gonna, <laughs> she's gonna get it done, and I'm glad that, that she's like that. And, I, and listen, I, at this point, realize I am the man. <laughs> I've gotta put my foot down. And I've got to say, so I told her, absolutely not. This is not going to happen. I am tired. I am worn out. I am done. We are not doing the garage. Ladies, you can't answer. You don't say anything. You'd be quiet for one minute. Guys, what do you think we did? 
Yeah, absolutely, we did the garage. You, you know it, that's right. She had me in there. We were doing the, we were working on the garage and sure enough, by sometime in the night, we finished the garage. Now, we were filing for divorce, but we had, <laughs> we finished the garage. Now, my wife will always said uh, she would never divorce me. Murder, but you know, she's not gonna. Um, so we were done, uh, we were not talking. Um, I would like to tell you it was a wonderful romantic evening after that. It was not, but by the next morning, I was really happy because it's all done, right? Is doing important? Of course it's important. But the problem is, sometimes you can focus so much on the doing, and the religious leaders would, and that was the, that was the, the marker for them, that they miss the most important part, and that is what God wants to do as far as the motivation of who we are. And he wants to deal with that. In fact, number three, I put this in your outline. Jesus is going beyond, he, he's going beyond that, the doing part. And he's going to go to the why and the for whom. Because this is the alignment part. Why are you doing this? Who are you doing this for? It's not that, that he's saying don't do good things. He's just saying the emphasis needs to be why do you do these things and who do you do these things for? That's the key to all this, especially as you get older and as you grow up. It's for parents, it's the key. You go through all these pains, you do all this stuff, why? Because of the kids, yeah. There's, there's a motivation to it um, that, that you are aiming at something and you have a plan for something and God is exactly the same way. He has plans for his kids, his, his sons and daughters, the people that, that he created. Uh, second three in here, I think that this will help uh, also. Uh, number four, Jesus makes a shift for them. This shift is from this for others because that's how they were doing it before. That tends to be their motivation. And this for God, your, your father. In fact, Jesus actually does this all through the Sermon on the Mount. Rather than talk about just about God, uh, he talks about the Father over and over again. He changes the terms, and that makes it entirely different. It's not just a God in the heavens, powerful, creates, whatever, distant. This is the one who gave you life and in whose image you were made after. You're not God. You never will be, but you were shaped by God, and he made you in his image, and that, that changes everything. That changes the, the alignment, the dynamics of who you are in life and why you do the things that you do. And here's uh, number five. Um, this is a major shift, a major shift in both alignment and what? Reward, yes. Who's gonna reward you? Who are you doing this for? Why do you do this? And when all of a sudden you make this shift in your life. You're not doing it for other people. You're not doing it just because of what other people think. Even, I'm not saying that's not important. It's just not the most important thing. But all of a sudden you're doing this because of who God is and the fact that he gave you life and he has a plan for you. In fact, right now, you, you sit here in this place, in this time, in this world because God chose to put you here at this time, in this place, in this world. Now, he did it through, you're right, your parents, grandparents, people, that, yeah, all those things are part of it. But, but God himself is the one who 
planned and watched after you. And when you look at it that way, when you understand it that way, when you align yourself in that way, knowing then that that's the one that I wanna look to for the rewards in my life, and yes, you should do things for rewards. He does reward. Then everything changes. Paul actually does this with Timothy. He talks to uh, Timothy, he says, a lot of people think that godliness, godly alignment, godliness is a matter of profit, and he's actually speaking against that. That means they think if they, they can use the things of God to get stuff. And, and, and then he says this, he says, actually, godliness is a means of profit, very profitable to align yourself with God. But he adds this, he says, if you combine it with contentment, because see, the idea of contentment is this is my life, this is who I am, this is who God made me, so I'm doing this for him. That changes the whole equation to how you see it and, and how you're going to, how you're going to uh, live your life. And then I put down, I could rename the title uh, instead of uh, uh, talking about this, this um, idea of a, of a godly alignment to stay in fatherly alignment because that's what he's doing. He's shifting it not just to God, this is the Father in your life. So here Jesus is gonna talk a little bit more in the next uh, paragraph about this conversation that we have with God when you pray and he's gonna set it up. And I think this passage is all about, I, I, I would miss it, a lot of times I say this is how you pray, this, and, and I would misunderstand that this is about him teaching them how you're gonna align your life. And, and even in your prayers, you're gonna see this alignment. So then he adds this in verse number seven. He says, when you pray, he says, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. Listen to this part. For your heavenly father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. So you should pray like this. And Jesus taught them this model prayer. Um, one old uh, commentator, uh, he would say, a lot of people call this the Lord's Prayer. He said, actually, this is the prayer of those who followed him and were taught by him. This is him trying to teach them how to pray and why they pray and the alignment even that their prayers put them in with God. And you know the Lord's Prayer. Um, you've probably said it before, heard it before. Maybe you were raised in a church where you had to memorize it. I was that way. And uh, every Sunday we repeated it. So King James Version, the Lord's Prayer goes like what? Our Father who hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our now this is where you're gonna find out what church you were raised in. It can, it's either forgive us our debts, our trespasses, or our sins. And so it's all right, whichever way you were, you were taught to uh, say it, uh, forgive us those things. Just as we've forgive, forgiven our debtors or those who've trespassed against us or those who've sinned against us. So however you wanna say it, that's fine. And then he adds, he says, and lead us not into, but deliver us from, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And if you're real spiritual, it's forever and ever. And uh, so, you know, the, uh, amen. The, just to let you know, I know you're looking in there and saying, well, that, that part's not, no, it wasn't. It was added later, but that's okay. 
Uh, they added it later for a, a reason, but as far as Jesus teaching them, Jesus is teaching them as they pray how to align their lives with God, right? God is the, um, in the Old Testament, you may not know this, but um, God in the Old Testament is, we, we would say Yahweh is his name, or we might say Jehovah. It's actually the same name. I know that may sound strange to you, but it's because in the Hebrew, uh, God's name was always kept unpointed. I know you think, what does that mean? Well, their Hebrew old texts are unpointed, and then later they have what they call pointed texts, and that just means they added the syllables to it, you know, the, so you could pronounce it. And in the oldest ones, they didn't do that. So, and those are, are dots or points and little dashes to say what the sound is around those words. And that was done later so that they wouldn't lose the pronunciation of the Hebrew language. Makes perfect sense, right? Except there was one word, one name, that they would not point or they would not give you the pronunciation of it. And that was the name of God. That's why you have Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on you know, how you've decided it must have been pronounced. And the, the whole point for them was they didn't want you to pronounce it. <laughs> they were afraid of, of mispronouncing God's name or somehow saying it in a, in a way that you would offend God. This is how they viewed it. And so the best way to do that is let's just make it so no one can pronounce the name or doesn't try to pronounce the name. And then when God comes in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to us, boy, everything changes. Oh, one of the things also that you might not know, in, in the book of um, uh, Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book, it's in the Law of Moses, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's the, the books of the law. It, there's this, in the, in the um, I think it's in the sixth chapter, about down in verse number four, there's a thing called the Shema. And Shema is just Hebrew word that means listen. And uh, so they, they often name things based on the first word. And it says, listen, the Lord your God is one. He is one God. And they would, every morning, every Jewish person gets up and says that like a prayer to God. And before they would go to bed, they would say it again. Remember, the Lord your God, he is one. He is one God. And that was the, 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 the prayer or the, or the, the kind of the, the um, constitution for them of who they were and how they saw God. It was, it was unusual because, like I said, they didn't really want to pronounce that name. So one of the words that they used is Elohim. Elohim, it comes from the cultural idea of God, and Elohim is plural. God, but it's actually plural. It's, it's, here's what's interesting. That's how the culture saw the gods. They would use the plural form, but like I said, the Lord your God, your Elohim is what? One God, yes. So they would use the form of their culture, but they would tell them, but it's not what you think. And now a lot of people would say, well, is this even God himself saying that the Trinity, he is three in one? It could be, very, very possible. But this is what he's saying more than anything else. One, one in alignment, one in who we are. Being a follower of Jesus is, does not mean that we all look alike, that we all see everything the same way, that we all dress alike, that we all have the, the same gifts and skills, even though sometimes uh, Christian churches try to do that, saying that this, this would be important. That's, that's not what it means. It means we are in alignment with one God, one God. And that one God is the one that we follow. Yes, one God in three persons, but one God. And that's where the unity comes from because of our alignment 
with this one God. I think it's, it's reflected in marriage. And if you look even in Genesis, you'll see this where, where he says, you know, so a, a man shall leave his mother and father, he shall be united to his wife, and you know what it says in Genesis? And the two shall become what? One, yeah. They're separate, they're different, they're individuals. The wife is in charge. The, uh, okay, oh, I'm sorry, I, I slipped in again. Uh, the, uh, but, <laughs> but you're one, you, you work together as one. You, you learn to, to, to function together as one. Jesus even taught his disciples this. He said, listen, this is how the world works. When you get mad at each other, you go your own way. Hey, your way, my way. I'm gonna do things my way. It's all about me. He said, it won't be that way for you. He said, no, for you, they will know you because of your love for one another. It, it brings you together. You are committed to the same Lord, the same God, and so because of that, even when you differ, even when you don't see it the same way, even when you struggle through things, there's still an alignment because of who you are aligned to, all of you are aligned to. And that's the way life works for us. It's the way it's supposed to work, and that's why it continues to grow and invade cultures and people's lives because it's one of those just incredible things that when God comes and becomes real and living in your life, boy, there's a connection. Even though you don't see everything the same way, there's still this connection because you understand who God is and what he has done. So, or it's prayer. God, you're in heaven. You're not like us. <laughs> you're, you're a whole other than who we are. Hallowed be your name. You know what hallowed means? It means lifted up, separated, protected, made holy like no other name. Hallowed be your name, not our name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom is more important. Your kingdom, we are looking forward to, we are praying for the day that your kingdom will come just like it is in heaven. It will come here among us in our world and our lives. Give us today the things that we need. You know what we need. Everything comes from your hands anyway. We participate in it, absolutely. We work at it, we try to be disciplined at it, but we still understand that it comes from you into our lives. My life, your life, this is who you chose us to be. Forgive us our sins, just as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And then he adds this. Here's what he says in verse number 14. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Uh-oh. <laughs> that sound conditional? Okay, maybe not. You sound conditional? Yeah, it sure does, doesn't it? And here's one of the struggles that you might have. You say, well, I thought God's love for us was unconditional. It absolutely is. So why does it sound that way? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to tell you, but somehow he has put the two together saying he forgives and he says, and you are to forgive also. And if you don't forgive, see here's what I think he's saying. If you don't align yourself understanding who God is and how he's forgiven you, you're not gonna have the power or the ability to forgive somebody else. And it's still a struggle, it is. I struggle with, don't you struggle sometimes with believing that God has forgiven you? You struggle with that sometimes? Sure. You see your sins? You see the sinfulness of your own heart? This, this part of you 
that, that wants to go after things that you shouldn't go after. Oh, by the way, when he says, and lead us not to temptation, he's not saying, God, you know, don't let us ever see anything that would tempt us. He's saying, don't let us give in. That's what it means. Don't let us give in to those temptations. Help us, strengthen us, and of all things, keep us from chasing after and following after the evil one because Jesus had a theology of evil. There was an evil one. There was a way you did not wanna go. There's one who would fight against God in everything, and so you had to make a choice. And part of that choice is to say, thank you for your forgiveness. And then the hard part of it forgiving other people, right? I don't know about you, but I struggle with that sometimes because sometimes I don't like what other people do. And I know you may say, ah, it's not that hard. Okay, so let me just tell you what we're gonna talk about next, politics. Oh, forgiveness is a lot more, a lot more difficult, isn't it? The football game. Okay, who are you gonna pull for, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, um, there are other things. Maybe family, oh man, don't bring up family now. How about school? You started the school out. Oh, don't start talking about forgiving. And you know, um, how about work? Whew, man, yeah, forgiveness is difficult. The only way we do it is because of who God is, and because of how we see Him and what He's done in our life. And somehow we find the ability to forgive. And and it's all about not just because human beings are so good at that, we're not good at that, but because of who we are aligned with in life. He changes everything. So I know you're saying, but explain, I don't know how to explain it. It's just somehow tied together and, and somehow our minds may not be able to, to quite fathom it or figure it out, but Jesus absolutely puts it together so that you could not get away from it and so that you would look at your life and say, okay, God, if I'm gonna align myself with you, I know there's some tough things that I'm gonna have to end up doing because of what you have done for me, yes. If you, if you have one of these or if you're online and you wanna grab something, we're gonna celebrate what Jesus did for us, the Lord's Supper. Because this is what changed everything um, about 2,000 years ago. When Jesus gives his life on the cross for our sins, and then he walks out of the grave, he is raised to show that he has conquered both our sin, our sinfulness, and death itself, which is the penalty, the end, we think, but it's not the end because of him. The uh, top part is kind of a piece of bread. I know that you're gonna think, you sure that's not styrofoam? In these, in these things, it's a little wafer that's there. And it represents something. Jesus would gather with his disciples uh, before his crucifixion, and he would celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper with them. It was actually um, the, um, the celebration in Egypt of walking out of Egypt and being set free and uh, they would celebrate it you know, yearly to remember how God had rescued them from their oppressors. And, and if you think about how they were rescued even then, they would take the blood of a lamb and they would paint it on their doorpost. So it was not their lives that rescued them. It was the life of a lamb. And in this case, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he will be the lamb of God, the lamb of God. And he will give his life for them. So he takes the bread. 
bread of Passover. And he breaks it and he gives it a new meaning. He said, this is my life that is broken. The suffering he would go through, all of the things that, that, that we deserve, because he was sinless, but he takes them upon himself because they would destroy us. So he taught his disciples, he said, this is the bread that came out of heaven. It's not as your fathers ate and died. He said, he who eats this bread shall live forever. Then as was traditional, he takes a cup. Uh, They would pass one last cup after the meal was over. And Jesus takes this cup and he gives it a brand new meaning. He says the wine in this cup actually represents a new covenant, a new life. I, my, my favorite illustration for me in my life is I had a friend had leukemia, a form of uh, blood disease, and so he had to get eventually a bone marrow transplant from his sister. And when they transplanted her bone marrow into him, and it all changed, and everything changed, and his blood type changed. I said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Wait a minute, you're telling me? He said, yeah, I used to be A negative, now I'm O positive because that's her blood type. And I thought, wow, what an incredible illustration of what Jesus does for us and what his blood does for us. There's a new life flowing through us. There's a new life that lives inside of us. The same reason forgiven and we forgive. Something's going through us that wasn't, of us, it was bigger and better than us that he brought to us. And so John, he will later write in his old age, he'll write, if we walk in the light, right? Understanding, seeing what Jesus did. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all our sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you had a plan for us. And it's one of those things that's easy for us to miss. Just have plans for ourselves and, and not look to you. And, uh, and because of that, we don't realize what you've done to set us free and to give us life. But Lord, we do understand because of your son, Jesus, and he comes and he demonstrates and he shows us and he teaches us what it really means to know you, to find the motivation that comes from you in our hearts and in our lives to live differently, a different power in our lives. If you're here and you've never invited Jesus Christ to come and live in your life, what a wonderful time to say, Lord Jesus, thank you. I didn't realize before that you came to change me, show me who I was, who made me, to bring forgiveness to my life, forgiveness I could not have brought to myself, and to teach me to live differently, to live in a way that my heavenly Father would want me to live. So Lord Jesus, come live inside of me. Forgive me my sins. Give me a new spirit, your spirit, a new life. In Jesus' name I pray.